like pork is my absolute favourite. I think it's my spirit animal. We had some amazing pork dishes on the menu across our time and being an Italian restaurant, we were able to really explore with braising and, and roasting and salumi and we got to use some incredible Australian produce. This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Age should not be a barrier for career change. Fear of failure should not stop you taking a chance on what you believe in. As the old saying goes, you only live once. And for Danielle Dixon, her passion for food drove her to take a chance at the age of 29 and change careers. The decision altered her life forever. So, Danielle, you started your apprenticeship at the age of 29, a lot later than a lot a lot of other people. Well, what was it like doing it at that age? Um, it was quite a... It was quite a strange experience because you kind of felt like you were way too old to be doing this, um, even though you don't really feel old. <laughs> and you had all these, like, young people around you that felt like they could, you know, they had this huge career ahead of you and I'm sort of like 29, I'd, I'd missed the boat to go and work overseas because of the whole visa age requirement. And um, so there was a little bit of me that felt starting at 29 had put me at a disadvantage because I never got to do the overseas work thing and um, and everyone just seemed so much younger and so much more energetic. What triggered the change in your life? What were you doing before that and and what triggered that move into food? (laughs) Food has always been like a massive part of our family. Um, Like everything we do is around celebrating is around food and uh, mum has always cooked for us all the time and I just have this, like, I'm naturally just drawn to food. I'm, I'm addicted to food, as I'm sure most people in our industry are, and I love ex- I love everything about the experience of eating or cooking for someone and I'd always wanted to do it in, um, like, a – in a capacity where I could earn money from it and go to work every day and do something I loved. But I never thought that I could complete a chef's apprenticeship. I just didn't think it was even open to me. And then I went on that little show called MasterChef <laughs> and um, and I went, you know what, I've, gone, I've done this. I might as well just bite the bullet and get an apprenticeship done um, and see if it's really for me. And so I just jumped off the edge and, and dove on in. So that was kind of like how I, I got to this point. Well, I want, to, I want to explore some of the establishments that you started your cooking career in, but you mentioned how important food was to your family. Take, take us back to when you were young. Is there any sort of feasts or dishes that you remember from around the family table? Mum does the best potato bake ever. Um, <laughs> and, you know, like we still do family feasts now. Like I'm really fortunate enough that I have both my parents still with me and, you know, my family all live really close. So every Sunday is a massive family feast. We sit around, we catch up, um, everything gets, you know, put aside just to spend time with our fam, like together uh, as a family. So, you know, and and the centrepiece of that is a massive table laden with food you know mum can't just cook a roast she needs to cook five so we'll have like chicken and pork and lamb and beef 
and some kind of pasta dish and salad and, you know, like it's crazy the amount of food. There's there's 18 of us, so it's, a, you know, it's a decent amount of people to feed, but um, there's always leftovers to last you an eternity. So, <laughs> What were the challenges for you in the kitchen in those early days as an apprentice, um, sort of learning the, learning the ropes from the commercial cookery side of things as opposed to being on something like MasterChef? You know, the, the, there's a misconception around MasterChef contestants in that they have an easy ride and, um, you know, we all think, oh, we know what we're doing. And But most of the contestants that go on that show don't have the attitude that, oh, I know better or I, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a chef without doing the training. They're all really humble. Well, the people that I, I know from the show. Uh, and they would never presume to have the skill level or the knowledge of someone who's, you know, studied and trained for their craft over you know extended period of time but what it did what that show gave me was we did long hours like there were some shoots that I remember the Sonoma bakery shoot from my season we were in the bakery for almost 15 hours Uh, yeah and so it it also taught us to think on our feet it taught us to improvise Um, it taught us to hustle and it gave us thick skins as well because you can't you know you're facing a critique almost every day um, from, you know, George, Matt and Gary. And so that actually set me up mentally to jump into a kitchen because I knew I could keep up. Um, What it didn't set me up for was kind of the, the backlash from other chefs who just thought I was in for an easy ride or I thought that I, you know, knew everything because I'd been on TV, but my approach has always been be humble, put your head down, put your butt up and just work it until you know it. Would you put your head down in some of Australia's best restaurants, Key, Rockpool, Aria? Tell us about the experiences of those establishments. So I was really fortunate to do my traditional apprenticeship with Alison Tafe, who I now actually work for at the Institute of Culinary Excellence, and doing an apprenticeship with her meant I had, because she, you know, travels all over and does her own thing as well, but I had the flexibility to go and do stages in some of Australia's or some, yeah, some of the best restaurants in Australia. Uh, I loved every minute of it and it really helped me identify what my style was and what food I really do love. I have the utmost respect for, you know, the, the fine dining institutes in Australia, who the the chefs commit a hundred percent to that, and you know that's changing a lot now in our in this current era of chefs. But um, it was such an amazing experience, and it really opened my eyes up to the reality of this industry. And I love the hospitality industry; like I am just, it's, I feel it's my one true calling in life. Um, and having that experience meant I got so much knowledge and I was able to observe so much um, amazing skill level, but it also gave me a real appreciation for just what it takes to be successful. Yeah. Tell, tell us a bit about what, what that is. What, what does it take to be successful? You know, you've got, and it, like I said, it's changing. Like I see this younger generation coming through and they have a different idea of what success is for them. Um, It's changing a lot. You know, I think initially, and I know when MasterChef first started, for example, there was this big um, 
uptake in, I guess, chefing and an interest in chefing because it was like all about the celebrity chef status. And that brought a lot of people into the industry, which I I don't know if they realized the full extent of what it meant to get to that level where you could be recognized by your peers and the general public as, you know, someone of influence. Um, but what it takes to be successful in this industry is you've got to love it and you've got to be committed and you've got to establish relationships um, with those around you and be respectful of the people who've come before you and, you know, like invest the time and the energy, look after yourself uh, and, you know, really focus on what's important to you in your career. You're currently at the Institute of Culinary Excellence, but you did spend four years as head chef of a well-known Brisbane restaurant. Take us back to that time. What was that like for you? Um, I always say that Bucci was my kitchen home. I love, like, I, I just loved that restaurant and I still get, like, a little bit emotional when I think that it doesn't exist anymore because, unfortunately, it was a, a, a you know, a COVID um you know, victim or I don't know, victim's not really the right word, but um, I just, I love Sean and Tanya, the owners of Bucci, really created a family there. I loved the food that we were doing. I learned so much from Sean. I learned even more from Tanya as a business owner and a, and a woman in business. Um, it was just a really amazing experience. And I feel like we had this really amazing time in the Brisbane, like, dining scene where it was, like you didn't have to be um, showy. You just had to do good food and, and use really good ingredients and highlight the ingredients and the produce you were using. Well, tell us a bit about the food that you had on the menu Menu there. Are there any pork dishes that really stood out in your time there as head chef? Um, we, we used to – because, like, pork is my absolute favourite. I think it's my spirit animal. Uh, pigs are my spirit animal today. <laughs> Uh, we had some amazing pork dishes on the menu across our time and being an Italian restaurant, we were able to really explore with, you know, braising and, and roasting and, um, you know, salumi and we got to use some incredible Australian produce like Salumi Australia does the most incredible traditional Italian style salumi, you know, with Australian pork and, um, you know, produced, I'm going to say locally, but, you know, Byron is a, you know, northern New South Wales is kind of local, right? Um, <laughs> so our porchetta and the amount of porchettas I've rolled and roasted and carved, but it was just good because it was just a classic dish and you had to execute it really well. You know, you had to make sure that everything was seasoned beautifully and that, you know, it was trimmed nicely and, and roasted properly and, you know, otherwise the customer didn't get what you were trying to put on the plate because it is such a simple thing. Um, but we used to play around with pork dishes all the time. It was great. The, uh, porchetta is such a is such a beautiful way to enjoy pork. What, what sort of accompaniments did you serve with it in the restaurant? Oh, I remember <laughs> we used to – so we roasted our – you used to roast our pork on um, big thick slices of potato and uh, so it would absorb all the pork fat and get really crispy and awesome. And they would just be like chef snacks, you know, like you roast the porchetta and you pull the porchetta out and it rests and you got these chef snacks which were roasted potatoes and then we actually started to mash them up. 
um, and add lots of other, you know, bits and pieces to them. And they would sit underneath the porchetta with like the roasted um, juices and uh, and then just a really nice, yeah, <laughs> just a really nice little rocket salad on the side because it was so rich. But it was roasted pork fat potatoes, you know, with butter and stuff through them. It sounds crazy, but oh god, it was so delicious. <laughs> When you say the pig is your spirit animal, I'm starting to believe you because you, you had a, a pig out pop-up. Can you tell us about that? Uh, yes. I loved my pig out pop-up. Uh, so there was a time when I stepped away from Bucci uh, for about 12 months just to take care of myself for a little bit. And um, Sean and Tanya had a space out the back, which was a, a cafe space. And I took that over and I created a pig out pop-up and we served nothing but pork for two weeks. And it was awesome. Every day the menu changed. Um, we had a staple item, which I don't even know how many kilos of pork cheeks I braised in buttermilk and then <laughs> fried, but we had a, a KFP burger um, and it was Kentucky fried pork cheeks. And so we would braise the cheeks overnight in buttermilk and then, um, yeah, dredge them in flour and fry them. And they were just nuggets of amazing goodness. <laughs> And then, you know, none of this brioche bun stuff, but a good old white seeded bun with slaw and sometimes bacon and cheese if we were, you know, really putting it out there. And, yeah, it was just, just it was a great pop-up. And, um, you know, pork sometimes gets put to the side because it's either, you know, people look at it, it's maybe too fatty or it's too rich. or But there's so many things you can do with pork. You know, look at the bar me. <laughs> like it's the possibly the best sandwich around. Uh, yeah, so there's, you know, salumi and charcuterie and um, there's just so many great things you can do with it. It's such a versatile meat to work with. Do you have any stories of connecting with uh, pig uh, producers or farmers or being on the actual farm and seeing what goes on? <clears throat> so that's a really big focus of what we do here with the students at at the Institute of Culinary Excellence, is we connect them with producers so that they can develop those relationships and see what's out there, like literally just on our doorstep in Brisbane. We have the Scenic Rim an hour away and there's some incredible producers out there. Um, one of them I have quite a, quite a special connection with because we actually got married on their farm last year, um, but Tomarups. So they're a dairy farm, but they actually now produce pigs as well. And um, Simon Furley's using them out at Hazelwood Estate. Um, that's the pork on his menu. And um, they use their milk that's left over to feed their pigs. So all their pigs are milk fed. And it's gorgeous pork and it's a gorgeous farm. And yeah, we got married there last year. So we actually had um, Richard Usby cooking a pig on the spit. <laughs> on the farm um, we made sure the pigs were in a different field that day but yeah it was um you know it was very very local and it's such a special place Tomarups it's their story's incredible I met Kay and Dave Tomarup last year through Kath Rose um, who represents the scenic rim and and you know kind of tries to get people to engage with different producers out there and so Kath took me on this wonderful tour and I met Kay and she told me the story of how they were a Norco dairy farm and then things didn't go quite as they needed to with Norco. So they pulled away from Norco and they now sell their dairy independently. So they had to create a whole avenue of income 
um, away from one of the major dairy co-ops, which I can only imagine for a dairy farmer is a really um, scary thing to do because all of their security was gone. And so they, that's when they brought on pigs and they've got a beautiful farm stay there and they also produce amazing veal. Um, they're very connected with their land and they're very interested in making sure that the land is there to be able to be used um, sustainably for years and years and years. They're a sixth-generation dairy farm who now has diversified and is, is staying alive through that diversification and it's just a really special part of the world. How important is the the quality and the, and the and the connection with the producer for you with your cooking and what you do. I think it's that's where I've identified my true food style. It's like my food is not fancy. It's not complex, but I do believe that using the best quality produce um, that you can get your hands on and really making that shine is a way that we pay respect to the producers, to the animals that we're, that we're eating or the vegetables that we're eating. Um, I mean, it's everything. You can't – well, you can take terrible products and make them pleasant, but why even, why, why even bother? Why not just start with the best you can get your hands on and make it sing? I, I've never understood – taking something, turning it into something else, to reinvent it into something else um, and just over-processing things, I think just make the produce shine. Because someone invests their whole life, their whole day, into growing a carrot or raising a chicken or a pig. Why would you want to mess with that? These days you're the executive chef and head of curriculum at the Institute of Culinary Excellence where you got an apprenticeship. What's it like for you being in that environment um, and seeing the young apprentices come through, having been through that yourself? It gives me a really clear perspective on what they're coming into, what they need to work through and how they need to set themselves up for success. I love teaching and it's funny because when I when I was in high school, I wanted to be a high school teacher and I wanted to teach art and then I realised that going to uni for eight years without the guarantee of a well-paying job was kind of pointless. So, <laughs> so um, I then, you know, went and did a multitude of different things and, you know, MasterChef came along with that and then completing my apprenticeship with Alison um, and having the flexibility to go and experience food in different ways and on different levels because of um, because of her, then coming back and Alison asking me to teach, uh, it's it's really like it just it it blows my mind that journey because I've ended up doing what I wanted to do in the first place. I'm not art teaching art, well, I'm teaching it a form of art, I guess. But being able to say to the students, "Hey, I was in your shoes not that long ago." Um, and I've, I've been in industry not that long ago. And in fact, all of our trainers here are recent, um, you know, they've only recently left industry to come and work with us. So our students get a really, like a very realistic education of what a kitchen really is and how they need to move and how they need to communicate um, and what they need to do to succeed and to have, to get what they want out of their career. So I'm actually fortunate enough now Sean, who I worked with at Bucci, and it was a wonderful um, boss. He now works with me. So I get to work with him all over again, which is really cool. <laughs> we have a great fun time here. Yeah, it's great. The, 
the last couple of years have been incredibly challenging for the industry and it continues to be challenging. Well, what's it, what's it like dealing with the next generation and keeping them positive and interested? Has it, has it been different, the perspective for them moving into the industry? I don't think it's changed their perspective at all. I think it's been concerning because um, Brisbane, just like everywhere else in Australia, is experiencing a massive skilled shortage and it's almost impossible to find an apprentice who wants to commit to doing the work to become a qualified chef who actually can hold their own. Um, I don't know how... I do know how we go about enticing more apprentices into the industry, but it's a it, there's a big reform there. COVID, I think the challenging times we've faced through COVID have made people see that um, they can go elsewhere and do an easier job and get paid more money, which is a concern. Um, not that they can go get paid more money, but that there's not enough interest here to hold them in industry. And chefs are doing it as well. I mean, chefs that didn't think there was another career option out there for them, when they got stood down, they had to, you know, go and, and look elsewhere. And if they did find jobs, they they had this realisation that, oh, okay, um, I am more than a chef in a kitchen. I can go, I can do other things. That's a little off the question of what you asked me, but... Uh, it's just there's so much to talk about with that topic and it, it upsets me that, you know, like we have restaurants, every, everywhere has it, but, you know, in Brisbane there's restaurants that are closing because they don't have the staff to staff the, a service period um, and then how far does that go before we're just closing restaurants because it's like, well, it's not viable to open only three days a week but that's all I've got the staff to do. You mentioned that you had thoughts about ways to um, attract people to the industry and keeping them in there, but it is um, quite intricate. But can you take us into that a little bit? <laughs> How much time have you got and do you want me to get off my soapbox? <laughs> I I just, look, I don't know everything and I never profess to, but this is my opinion. Is And having worked for my parents, so my parents own their own business. Dad's been a mechanic for like 50-odd years. Um, so I see it from a business owner's point of view as well. But we need to start educating the people that are responsible for apprentices. So, And what I mean by that is how do we have our apprentices communicate with us that they're not happy um, or that they are really happy but they want to do more or that they've got some concerns or questions about their um, working conditions. They're not trying to cause trouble but they need to ask these questions but they're too scared because there's this constant thought process, I guess, or fear that they're just trying to, you know, rip off a business owner or get what they're not entitled to. Um, there's also education around how do you balance your how do you balance your apprentice's work life, and it's not our job to do that as employers. But how do you create effective rosters? How do you manage business costs so you don't need to rely on apprentices to staff a section while they're still learning because they're the cheaper labour? And this is this some of this might be controversial. Some of people will go sit there nodding. Some people will go oh. You know, well, that's just how it has to be. But there needs to be some really fundamental changes in our in our customers' perceptions of what dishes are worth, um, in business owners actually knowing 
their ins and outs of their business. So knowing the award, knowing how to pay correctly, knowing how to manage people correctly, knowing that that rent is actually not feasible long-term and to make it work, you've actually got to pay peanuts. Like there's so much stuff around educating the people that lead our industry in terms of business owners and head chefs that could actually trickle down and then create stronger foundations. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Then there's a, there's a lot to think about. You and you've you've got direct connections with the next generation. What is it that you love about what you do in your current role? The fact that I can give them skills to be really successful. It's you know I can't teach an apprentice how to cook. I can give them information. I can give them technique. I can, um, you know, give them some practical time with me where it's a safe space where they can, you know, make mistakes and burn things and not, you know, have it be critical because a customer's waiting for their steak or whatever else. Um, but what I can teach them is how to, you know, connect with people, how to talk to their supervisors in a way that, you know, conveys what they need and is respectful in that way, how to educate themselves on um what this industry is and what their responsibilities are, what the expectations of them are, what they should expect from their employers, um, and but do it in a way that's lighthearted and fun. <laughs> you know, we always, we always, you know, it sounds very heavy what I'm saying now, but it's really about giving young people or young people in our industry the confidence to ask for things, to have conversations, to initiate relationships, um, to understand the business as a whole. So it's not just them forgetting to order um, eggs for pastry section that then creates this chain of event, which means that everyone's in the shit kind of thing. Uh, yeah, there's, there's, that's what we can give them here. So we can give them a, an understanding of, of the industry and, and help them navigate that world because ultimately I see them in their apprenticeship for maybe – like 60 days out of their whole apprenticeship as a trainer. Um, the majority of their work happens in their workplace. So I just need to give them the most value that I can while they're here with me. Well, one of the val valuable things that you gave people in Brisbane was the porchetta all those years ago and you made a real name for yourself. I can't let you go without you telling us how, how do you make the best porchetta? You can't ask me that. Haven't you, inter haven't you interviewed Colin Fastnage? Like, he's the king of pork, right? I can't say anything that no one's heard before. <laughs> but it really, <laughs> it really comes down to having good quality pork and, like, you know, just don't try and mess with it. Season it up nicely. Let the skin dry out. Get it into a see. This is controversial. Get it into a really hot oven to start with, and then you know get that baby all bubbly and gorgeous, and then turn it down and let it slow cook because the belly is delicious when it's cooked properly. Otherwise, it can be you know tough as nails. But um, I can't tell people of Australia how to cook pork. You've had far more qualified people on this podcast than me. <laughs> I can tell you how to cook pork cheeks though. So. <laughs> I did like – I think I worked out I did about 80 kilos of pork cheeks across two weeks um, for, for pig out pop-up. So, well that, well, that is something that you can tell us. Um, please, do tell us how you did that, Tish. 
Um, so I've got my secret herbs and spices <laughs> and they get, um, it get, they vac, we backpack them in buttermilk, um, then sous vide them for 16 hours, um, let them cool completely in the buttermilk so that they, you know, kind of keep all that lovely gelatinous texture to them. Um, dry them really well, dredge them in the secret herbs and spices and, um, fry them up until they're crispy and awesome. But pork cheeks, I think, are just the best part of the pig they're yeah they're like little nuggets of golden delight (laughs) (laughs) well i don't i don't disagree with that at all Uh, and danielle it's been an absolute pleasure to catch up with you and just hear a little bit of your story good luck with everything that you're doing at the culinary institute there and um keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon thank you very much thanks this is the crackling a deep in the weeds production in partnership with Porkstar. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.